Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history is not pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney. And me, Crystal Alegria. As we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt. And in the archives. To uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues. But help us move forward in a better way with a deeper understanding of our past. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGLT studios speaking via Zoom with Carrie Mayer about her new novel, All You Have to Do is Call. We are so excited to talk with Carrie. But first, Crystal, I want to check in about your last week or so. How have you been? It's been good. It's been a a good week. Um, You and I were together at the Montana History Conference, which happened in Helena, Montana, last week and weekend. And we had a wonderful time and heard all sorts of amazing history presentations from a lot of our colleagues and friends about some wonderful research that they're doing. So we we had a great a great um, few days. Yeah, a lot of nice topics, um, mostly regional, local, kind of to the area. But it's always <clears throat> fun to see what new things are coming out, and to see people in person. Um, yeah. Plus, there were some amazing uh, keynote speakers. We got to hear from Elizabeth Fenn, who did an amazing sort of overview, I think, of the new book that she's working on that's about Sacagawea and really looking super closely at what it would have been like when she was abducted and actually originally taken away from the Shoshone people to live among the Hadatsa where she met Lewis and Clark. Um, So we get a bit of backstory. So that was super exciting. But we also had some other wonderful uh, speakers. And then you were part of a presentation. Yeah. Tell everyone a little bit about that. Yeah, we were in a, a session on preservation, historic preservation, and we um, it was myself and Sarah Rosenberg, who's the City of Bozeman Historic Preservation Planner. She's been on our podcast before. Right. You could go back and listen to her um, podcast. But her and I did a presentation on the importance of um, including the history of marginalized communities in architectural surveys, which is kind of when you're documenting um, historic residences and buildings in a town. And so we've been working on a project with the city of Bozeman to do an architectural survey of the north side of Bozeman, which is kind of more the working class part of Bozeman. And we've been documenting the houses where um, historic black community, where Bozeman's historic black community lived. And so we talked about that project. We did a presentation on that project. And and Sarah kind of talked about why we're doing that and the importance of doing that and then how that looks moving forward in the future. We were also in a session with a gentleman whose name was Carol Van West, and he did kind of a retrospective on how we've been doing this architectural survey or these surveys of these historic properties through Montana since from the 1980s. And then ours kind of talked about more present architectural surveys and how those have changed and what we're doing now. So it was really it was really a fun presentation. Yeah, a, a lot of historic preservation along with the history. And I think what's so great about that is that's active, that's on the ground. And a lot of that information gets back out into the community and in terms of uh, walking tours or other signage or information to homeowners. And I think the 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 
best thing I heard about that was that you all have been taking these architectural surveys, but really focusing more on the people Mm -hmm. and what it is that people did there, how they were living there, what brought them there, what they contributed to the community and to the region and and how they're part of sort of a bigger national story. Um, And I think that really uh, highlights some of the diversity because we are bringing in more focus and attention on things that are more um, communities of of color that have often been left out of the bigger story. So that was a really sort of wonderful welcome thing that came out of that. But there was a great conference, and we all got to stay together in a house that you Airbnb'd for us. And then we had to have a – we got a little – Time at the Capitol where they had some food and beverages for us, and then we saw some great film shorts. Right? Yeah, we went. They had an Indigenous film festival yeah. that kind of kicked off the conference, and we saw four Indigenous films, which were um, filmed by Indigenous people, and the all the crews were Indigenous, and so um, those were amazing to watch that first night. Each of the films was about 15 minutes long or so, and so that yeah, was really that was amazing film work and really mm-hmm. powerful stories. Those were great, and I encourage people to catch those if they can somewhere else. And this whole conference will be online soon for, at the Montana Historical Society's website. They'll have all the presentations on their YouTube page, so just go there and you'll find it Um in probably a week or two. Yeah, they'll have we'll everything get on them on. if it's yeah. not there. Yeah. yeah. So, Crystal, I think we're going to get back to our guest, Carrie, and I am going to go ahead and, Carrie, start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Carrie Mayer is the USA Today bestselling author of The Paris Bookseller, The Girl in White Gloves, and The Kennedy Debutante. Under the name Carrie Majors, she also authored This Is Not a Writing Manual, Notes for the Young Writer in the Real World. Carrie holds an MFA from Columbia University and lives with her daughter and dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. Well, we're so glad to have you here today. Carrie, welcome. We are excited to talk about your new novel, which is called All You Have to Do is Call. And it was released on September 19th of this year, 2023. And this book really honors the heroines of the Jane Collective, who provided safe clandestine health services in the pre-Roe v. Wade era, kind of that early 1970s. So Carrie, can you give us a quick overview of the book. Yeah, so it is um, loosely based on the women of the Jane Collective, which means that my characters are not the real women of Jane. They are entirely fictional characters, which I always like to flag for readers who have followed me from previous novels. Um, My first three novels that you mentioned are about real life women like Grace Kelly and Sylvia Beach, who opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in the 1920s. So this this novel, All You Have to Do is Called, takes um, the idea of Jane but uh, populates the novel with fictional characters. And there are three point of view characters. One of them is Veronica, who is one of the founders of the Jane of the novel. The other one is a very good old friend of Veronica's named Patty, who does not know that her old friend Veronica is running an abortion service in her neighborhood and would be horrified to find this out. Um, so we've got right, right there, so uh, like a deep, deep, dark secret between old friends um, who care very much about one another. And then the third point of view character is named Margaret, and she has just arrived in Chicago at the start of the novel in 1971 as a young tenure track history, um, English professor at the University of Chicago. And she begins to um, 
uh, volunteer secretly for Jane. She also, at the beginning of the novel, starts going out with a man named Gabe uh, Johnson, who is the ex-husband of the other founding member of Jane, whose name is Siobhan. Siobhan and Veronica are good friends, but Siobhan is not a point of view character. She's she's an important secondary character. I am super interested in, you know, there's been a lot of stories that were coming out in 2018 and and then films also in, in, in 2022. So people writing about this, people talking about this, and some of those are documentary or sort of historical fictionalized accounts. Yours is taking that as a starting point and moving uh, into fictional characters. So one of the things we wanted to ask you is um, talk a little bit about who some of the women were that you researched that were the founding members in real life of the Jane Collective. And what was the reason that you decided to create historical character, um, excuse me, fictional characters instead, not so tightly based on the, the women who were the actual members of the Jane Collective? Yeah. So, you know, the women of the Jane Collective are mostly still with us today and are perfectly capable of telling their own stories. <laughs> um, you know, Heather Booth is one of the very, it was really the very original founder of the referral service. You know, Jane began as a referral service. They, um, it took them a few years before um, a different set of core members really took the DNCs, took matters into their own hands and, and provided the abortions themselves. Um, but uh, I did read the books of um, two of the other members of Jane that wrote nonfiction accounts of their time with Jane. Um, one was by uh, Judith Arcana, and the other one was by um, Laura Kaplan. And both of those books were really fascinating to read. Um, there have been several documentaries over the years about Jane. One was like in the from the early '90s, and I had to really go snooping through the Boston Public Library system to find a copy of it. Um, but I'm really glad I did. I watched it. And, uh, you know, these so the, these women were um, much younger then than they are now. And they were talking about their experience um, in, in participating in Jane. So that was fascinating to me. A more recent documentary, which was terrific, was called She's Beautiful When She's Angry. And um, that was about the women's movement more generally, but they spent quite a lot of time talking about abortion rights and Jane in particular. So, um, and why, why decide not to write about them specifically? Like I said, they're still with us. They can tell their own stories. I also, this is sort of a woo-woo answer, but it's also just the truth. Um, when I started thinking about the Jane Collective and writing about them, these three characters, Veronica, Patty, and Margaret kind of walked on stage in my mind and were like, we'd like to audition for the part, please. <laughs> um, and there it was. It was sort of, they they kind of arrived and their their stories um, kind of, I, I sort of pulling the thread of their stories and they just, the three of them made sense to me as a trio of narrators. Uh, and I think part of the reason I wanted to tell it from multiple points of view is because this is an issue with lots of points of view. Um, and I wanted to show the co- whole whole kaleidoscope of it. So that totally makes sense, given the way you explain it. I'm just fascinated when you start reading your novel, and I had not been um, delving into and reading about other things that had come out about the Jane Collective. So this was a fairly new story for me. And when I begin reading 
your book, I'm thinking, well, there's no way this could ever have really happened. And I think that's what's so fascinating is that your story is amazing that you've built on top of this even more almost unbelievable historical event, you know, that happened and, and, and kept happening for a number of years. I mean, these women performed or were able to assist and get assistance for women for 11,000 uh, successful abortions. And um, and their health outcomes, for the most part, were the, the same as what you would expect from trained practitioners today. At least that's what people reported. It's astonishing to me. Yeah. It's astonishing. It is astonishing. And I mean, you know, I actually go back to um, the very first historical novel I wrote, which was the Kennedy debutante, in which it was my first time writing a true life story. Um, and, you know, I was really, you know, keeping close to, I wrote the story of Kick's life, right? And I always like to say that writing the truth taught me so much about writing fiction mm. because you literally cannot make this stuff up. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, like when I, I, I stumbled on the story of Jane in 2018, when I first heard this MTR news story about them, I'm like driving like my car, you know, going to meet a friend for a movie. I'm listening to the story about the, these women in Chicago who were lay practitioners. They were so young. They learned to give these safe abortions. And I'm just in my car going, they did what? I know. When you started in with that in the book, I'm thinking, what? Yeah. Like, am I reading this right? And and you're talking about the methods and you're talking that they have this apartment that they're going to and they have these. And you're thinking, how? I just, how is this right. possible? Yes. And, you know, thinking about how we think about doctors today, it just seems so unbelievable But that they had the, um, really, the audacity, you know, and I don't know if that's quite the I right word. I love that word. Yeah. I love that, I love that word, the yeah. audacity. Yeah. It is. They did have the audacity to, to do it. They yeah. absolutely did. I mean, there was a need, a, a, a clear need, and they're in that part of the country where they're, they haven't yet. You see, as they were saying, Colorado has it legal, but then you've got New York, Alaska, Hawaii, Washington. You know, there's so much of the country where a woman can't get to, especially of limited means. And then, of course, it's illegal, and people are saying all these horrible things about, you know, I loved um, just the little bit I looked into after it, that this this tagline of every woman should be able to have exactly as many children as she wants, when she wants if she wants. So it's it's more about really just focusing on women and women's health and women's choices in an era when you were talking about kind of it's second wave feminism, but there's so much that has not been become available for women to have control over their own body being this main this main issue at the point. Um Anyway, go ahead from there, Crystal. I just find the, the whole thing astonishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, I had watched a, a documentary about this in 2018, and I just kept coming back to that when we, I was reading your book about how you heard that NPR series and, you know, just thinking about these women and how they just kind of organized this and just went forward with it. And so kind of maybe you could talk a little bit more, Carrie, about when you heard that first NPR piece and kind of where it went from there and why yeah. you decided to kind of move forward with this book. Yeah, you know, it it grew, Jane as an organization grew very organically from like one friend, Heather Booth, calling a provider she'd heard about 
in one of her consciousness raising groups, her feminist consciousness graving groups, a friend needed an abortion. She had a name. She made a call. All you have to do is call. Yeah. And then it just really grew organically from there. Like, so the friend had a pretty good experience. Other women started calling the two of them and it, it grew from there. Um, and for a long time, they were just a referral service. And then they, they, they slowly got more and more involved in the process. There was a sort of core group of women who were holding the hands, doing the driving, and then eventually coming into the room where the room where it happened. And that was a big deal, right? Because I think a lot of folks felt, why was this always going into a male space and the woman was going in alone? And we all know how that feels. I mean, I think a lot of us now when we have the choice, we choose a female gynecologist, OBGYN, you know, there's that uncomfortableness and, and just forcing themselves into the room. It seems that that started to really change then how involved they got in the actual procedures and doing more for women than just getting them there and back. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and, and actually Jane was more than an abortion provider. That was sort of what they became most famous for, but they also had a day of the week where they provided um, pregnancy tests and pap smears and, and a limited STD testing. And they definitely did birth control um, counseling also. Um, in, in many ways, they were like a proto-planned parenthood. Yes. And birth um, control was, th- that was difficult at this time to get if you weren't uh-oh. married? Yes. This this varied by the state. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was legal technically legal on the books for any woman to get birth control, even if she wasn't married at this point, that it became legal for even unmarried women to get birth control in the late sixties, but it was not easy to get. And a very early scene with Margaret, um, to your point about choosing a female OBGYN, she goes to see a male OBGYN to try and get on the pill. And I won't say anything more about that, but that scene kind of, um, right. Right. that, That historical moment into relief. Um, you know, a pelvic exam is not your best time, the best of, in the best times. Right, <laughs> right. Not a lot of fun. It's got to be a kind of misogynist exercise, you know, right. is, is like just makes it 10 times worse, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, yeah. I, um, I mean, I can imagine that until they were able to get more women into the field, I mean, it must just have been such a, a strange thing. And then you do hold these, as you were kind of uh, alluding to crystal doctors into that, that regard where you think, well, they know all this. And then you're realizing, you know, this, the judgment that comes as a woman goes into the room to ask about the most important aspects of health for her and any future um, people that she's going to bring into the world and to be having um, somebody maybe withhold certain kinds of available um, birth control options from you and health options for you and judgment. Um, clearly, it, it's like a, when you hear about it, but the bravery of these young women, and it seems like more that people took advantage of the services or had someone they knew did wanted to get involved. And you you show in the book that for a lot of people, this idea of ending a pregnancy willfully seems abhorrent completely until you understand somebody that you know who has a particular circumstance. And, you know, in one case, um, you know, they mention the very first case, it was someone's sister who was suicidal because she had a pregnancy that she couldn't keep or didn't want to keep. And we just, I, I just, it's astonishing to me. I mean, looking at the whole woman, and I think this is what 
um, your book is doing, you're trying to create these portraits of these women who are not the Jane Collective women, but who easily could have been involved in these ways and understanding how they could come to this work, you know? Yes. You know, and, uh, you know, something I'm realizing, which is another answer to an, a part, uh, the re rest of the answer to an earlier question you asked, why fictionalize these women? Mm -hmm. It was partly because I wanted my characters to be a little bit older than the actual women were. The, you know, these, again, were college and just out of college age women. And some of them were getting married and having children of their own. But I really wanted my characters to be right around 30. And um, Veronica and Patty already have children. Veronica, who's one of the founders and one of the providers, has a seven-year-old daughter and is pregnant with a second. Um, Patty has three children. And so I really, it was important to me to explore that tension between having children and wanting children and also being a provider um, yes. um, of abortions, right? right. And, and I really wanted to show that those these, these things coexisted for them it, in in Veronica's mind, there was no tension between her being a, an abortion provider and having children and wanting children. Um, you know, and and I, I no spoilers, right? Because this is something that gets discussed, and it's a theme of the book, and so I'm not going to go too much into it. But I really wanted to explore it, um, and that's another reason why I wanted to make these characters um, fictional. So before we move on, Carrie, I just wanted to ask, so that tension that you want to explore there, which I think is a very interesting one, because we don't want to put women into two categories of those who have children and those who have abortions, you know, and um, so did you talk to women who have, uh, did you talk to any of the Jane women or did you talk to any other women who have been in a place where abortions are being provided or that kind of health care and health um, services for women? And they themselves also have their own children or, and, you know, I don't need you to reveal anything or get personal, but to what degree did um, having conversations with other women help you inform those characters specifically, Veronica yeah, you and know, Patty? You know, it's interesting, you know, as a woman who I was born in 1975, um, you're sort of living this your whole life yes. anyway. Yes. 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 Um, so, so yes, you know, obviously I did, I, I, I tried to do as much of my due diligence talking to women as I possibly could. And one of the things that really emerged for me in my, in the research was how differently the women of Jane and, and just the population as a whole talked about abortion and abortion rights in the early seventies than the way we talk about them now. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this a little bit in my author's note, but I just thought, well, because in the early 70s, it was just more matter of fact. They, There was like a clear division. Either you wanted the child and you called it a baby from the moment of conception, <laughs> or you didn't and you did something about it. And there was like no, and like Jane was, you know, their real name, which you, it, it spelled it out earlier, the Abortion Referral Service of Women's Liberation. Mm. They really took that seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, they were like, this is not the worst day of your life. This is the day that you take control of your own destiny. You have, you have control of your body. You have control of when you have children. You can have children later. This abortion is going to be fine. It's not going to sterilize you. Um, you can have children later. This is a choice you get to make, and you're making it today. And this was really something to, like, celebrate. <laughs> um, and, you know, in my lifetime, 
that got lost. And I can only, you know, having lived the life I lived, I was raised Catholic. Um, oh, hello. I can, so was I. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, I can only really point to the self-styled pro-life movement. People can't see me, but I'm putting rabbit ears around the term pro-life who changed the language around how we talk about abortion so that even pro-choice liberals, okay, would just use the word abortion in hushed tones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that it was something to be ashamed of. Oh, lots of shame. Like, yeah. Lots yeah. of shame. And it, it wasn't always that way. Mm. <laughs> it I, was not always that way. And, and I, it doesn't have to be that way in the future. Yeah, and I love that when you wrote about that in the book and the way that you wrote about the language, the way that you wrote the language into this historical novel, because you could do that in that way. And you were, used words like liberation and freedom and all those words that were bandied about uh, quite a bit in the 1970s, which we don't use those words at all no, anymore. it was more about empowering yeah. women, as you're yeah. saying, taking control over their lives in this. It was just all part and parcel of a woman's decision about her being in the world. And it is part of that. And I think people who are not members of, of this sex and gender and or not even related to those of us have so much to say about it. But then we also know the hypocrisy that occurs. And we, we know firsthand that so many people have had um, politicians and other members of the community bring mistresses, daughters, you know, all sorts of people to have an abortion, though, then they speak publicly about how shameful and illegal it should be if it isn't already at that time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I do see, I mean, just to, to insert a note of hope here, mm. I, you know, the language is changing again. I think that those of us, um, you know, um, who are pro-abortion and rights and, and reproductive justice, right, like are, uh, the language is changing again. We're not going back to the language of women's lib and all that, because that all seems sort of antiquated, not inclusive enough anymore, appropriately. Now, this is a much bigger umbrella that abortion rights are is under now, right? It's under really under the umbrella of reproductive health care for all, which includes women who choose to have their children, right, right, bringing them into a system that is going to help raise them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and that was another part of the book that yes. I really enjoyed is that you brought that in about child care and child rearing and and yes. and how it, in the early 1970s that was basically non-existent for women and and they these women in your book struggle with that quite a bit maybe you could speak to that Carrie a little bit yeah well you know this is something that it was always in the book but I leaned into this theme a little harder after Dobbs. I was in a revision phase in the summer of 2022 when Dobbs came down and Roe was overturned. So yes, right? Like these women are helping each other. You know, Veronica and Siobhan are like shuffling their children back and forth to each other right. while the other one goes and works at the at, at Jane. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they have a whole little mini childcare collective in order to, to do the work that they need to do. Which, by the way, we're still doing. We still right. do that. I'll do that. Yeah. Yep. We are yeah. still doing that, right? So because in 1970, there was the Comprehensive Child Care De Development Act, which would have offered like universal child care and preschool to American families. Think about how much that would have changed our lives, mm. right? But that's socialism. Come on, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it, socialism, that's past 
the House and the Senate. Oh my gosh, you're making me feel sick. I know. And, vetoed. And, and Richard Nixon vetoed mm. it. Mm. Thank you. Oh Thank my goodness. You. Yeah. Ugh. Um and 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 also on the table during this time was the Equal Rights Amendment, which was written actually in 1923 um, and had come up regularly for ratific, you know, to be ratified over in the course of years. But finally, again, passed the House and the Senate, went to the states for ratification. And that's a whole book unto itself. And many things have been written about it, but I'll just leave it at it didn't get ratified in time to become an amendment. But it could still. It it just needs a champion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I love that you bring that, all those things into the book. Because, of course, you know, and, and like you said, we're still juggling our kids, trying to get, you know, them taken care of while we're working. We're still working on the Equal Rights Amendment. We're still working on all these things. So, you know, there's things, there's so much that has changed, but there's so much that has stayed the same. So I love yeah. that aspect of it. Um, I think also bringing in different issues of race and class in the book is great because also that was clearly an issue that the Jane Collective in in real life found themselves confronting with and and who the populations were that they were serving most in need. I mean, a lot of times we hear these amazing stories too about um, families who already have three, four or five children and they, they can't take on another one and can't go through the whole pregnancy and give it up. And, and there's so many people, um, unaware and judging from the outside and not really understanding, you know, that there is post birth, you know, all of these things that have to happen. And mostly it, it falls on a woman, but it falls on a family and it affects all the children and everything and everybody's health. Um, so I think it, it was amazing how in an, in a not very, long novel this is very something is something that people can easily pick up and read and you don't have to wade into um any kind of historical fiction where you almost feel like you should be seeing footnotes at the end it's a really (laughs) readable story with really characters that you totally engage with but um but you you cover and touch on a lot of those points one of the things i did want to ask you about too is given that they operated for several years um not always providing abortion services themselves, but doing referral in the beginning. I think it was overall maybe six or seven years altogether and over 11,000 actual abortions performed. Um, How is it that they were able to, in a state where it was illegal to do this, evade getting raided, getting caught? I mean, they had posters up with phone numbers on it. So both in terms of the real life Jane and in how you address it at the book, can you talk a little bit about sort of how were they allowed to keep operating or how were they successfully operating under the radar? What was that situation? Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to like say that the research that I did was a little bit murky on this. So this was a place where I got to kind of take what I read and also read between the lines a little bit and also just insert what I know about how the world works. Um, and, you know, they had protectors. They they just had to, um, you know, so they had friendly doctors in, in hospitals where if something went wrong in a procedure, they could send, send the women without fear of um, retribution. And they, they, there were police officers who were very much on their side. Um, and, uh, you know, I, so, so that was it, right? Like, I just thought how, because they were like an open secret. Okay. Like they were yeah. illegal and they were quote a secret, but 
people knew about them. <laughs> right. Um, and there were, there were pamphlets and, and, po- you know, and banners and things. So, um, they, it wasn't like they, it was totally cloak and dagger. They just, but there was real subterfuge. So one of the things that, you know, this is not a spoiler. The, the prologue of the, of the novel is about an abortion. That's a good abortion. It's safe and clean and everything, but, and it works, but she has to wear a blindfold. Mm. And so when the women really took over the process, that, that was, that was the end of the blindfolds. So then the question was, okay, if they can see us, and we can see each other, how do we protect the organization? And so there was all kinds of driving that happened between locations um, and, you know, uh, different in different locations that would move around. So there was a certain amount of cloak and dagger subterfuge. So um, not completely like being like spies, but, but they were able to, and I feel like given what you're saying, they, you seem to capture that well in the book where you could see, you could just throw enough few things in there. But actually for me, that part was so welcoming to read about that, not to have to go in all covered up and feeling so ashamed and not seeing it It just adds to that level of tension and stress that I'm sure is not healthy for a woman and just feel so scary overall. It's just empowering. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. really about empowering women. And and so to do something that was so disempowering was just antithetical to everything that they mm. were doing. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, I loved also the part, and, and this I, w- was um, in, tr- in real life too, both in your novel and in real life, is when they would take these women in, there would be people who were making them coffee and making them food and yes. serving them. Yeah. chili or stew after the fact and com- giving them comfort in blankets and in you know these these people's houses follow they up were, calls yeah, and things. Fo- it reminded me yeah. of I had midwives for both my births and um I loved the care I got from my midwives I was terrified of hospitals and needles so that was why I went that route no bravery there but it ended up being such a great experience but it reminded me to a large degree of that whole history just of of birthing that way you know Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to take a quick station break and then just get on with the questions okay you are listening to the dirt on the past with co-hosts crystal alegria and nancy mahoney on kgvm bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts we're speaking today with carrie Mayer about her new book all you have to do is call so, um, Carrie, this book is very timely. And, um, you know, we, it, it, and you talked a little bit about this, um, the women that you talked to back in the 1970s, or that were doing this in the 1970s, um, you use, so some of the, that oral history research or talking to the people actually in the place. Um, you also did a little bit more research as well, I know. And so in listening to some of your other podcasts that you've been on, you talked a little bit about some of the sources that you looked at and that you referred to some secondary sources, but also some primary. So can you just talk about, you know, your process in writing this and kind of looking back and what you looked at to better understand this time period and these women and this and the Jane Collective itself? Yeah. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about the reading that I did. So Judith Arcana's book and Laura Kaplan's book were obviously important for me to read. Some other books about kind of the history of abortion in the United States and 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 how it worked at this specific moment, which was actually really hard to, to, to dig up accurately. Essentially, pre-Roe, it's a lot like it is now. It was up to the states. There was no federal 
law on abortion. Um, and so there were some states where it was more or less easy to get. It was it was basically illegal everywhere. You, you There were some states where you could get a therapeutic abortion, and Illinois was one of those. But that meant that you had to prove if you were pregnant, you needed felt you needed to terminate your pregnancy. You had to go before the hospital board and prove that you your life was really in danger or that the, the, the child's life was really in danger. So this was not a great situation. Anyway, so lots of books about that. I also, um, I, I, you know, there were some documentaries. I, did I have? I mentioned she's beautiful when she's angry. That was a terrific um, oh, documentary wow. that I that I watched. That came out a few years ago. You can stream it when you finish listening to this podcast. Um, it's about the women's movement, but it focuses a lot on reproductive health and um, abortions and the Jane Collective. It's really terrific. But another another documentary I watched. It was a series on Apple TV was 1971, the year that music changed everything. <laughs> and that was really important for me to watch, actually, because it was all about the music and the fashion and the television shows and all of the pop culture stuff that was happening um, that that my characters would have been consuming and been bombarded with, you know, every day. Right, right. Um, so, so really watching that was really, was really great. And thank goodness for Spotify, right? You can say, Spotify, play me songs from 1970. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I did that too. Um, and so all of those kind of, kinds of pieces of research really put me in the right mindset to, um, to write the book. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm in the luxurious position now of writing books under contract. So, I don't have all the time in the world to do every last track down every last piece of research. You know, I have to make choices about what I'm going to what I'm going to focus on and what I'm not going to focus on. Um, and in this in this book also, because I was writing about fictional women, I, there was a little bit less homework to do because I, I was making up their lives. I wasn't beholden to any specific events in the character's you know, well, lives. And given that there are documentaries out there and other things written, I think this is a welcome addition to understanding that time and that issue. For me, being born in 1968, um, it was fascinating because all I could think of was my mother. And I was sort of the daughter of, of one of those women like Veronica and Siobhan, a little younger. But um, I was... I mean, my mom has passed and it's uh, bums me out so much because I would love to be able to have those kinds of open conversations you could have now with all that perspective, things that growing up Catholic in our community, you couldn't really have. But things I am sure she talked about with her close women friends and all sorts of things because my mom made choices and then she didn't just keep having children. I mean, I know she used birth control. I know there were other things happening and I would have loved to have understood her reaction to Roe versus Wade and women's liberation issues. Those were conversations I just started having my babies and didn't get around to talking to. And I know, Crystal, sometimes, too, we talk about how, you know, these things that have come up in history for us open up dialogues with with friends in our own um, in our own lives in ways that we just hadn't before. I think our daughter's generation might be a little different. Crystal, what do you think? Oh, very know. much so. Yeah. yeah, very much so. It's, you know, we have daughters that are in their early 20s 
well, 19 and 20, mm-hmm. 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so it is, it's interesting to talk with them now about what they're going through with um, Dobbs and, and some of the, the thoughts that they have about this and kind of thinking back to when um, Nancy and I were young and, you know, you were, you were born in 1975. I was born in 1971, 1968. So that we're really kind of around that time period. So thinking about our lives and you really represented, you know, our mother's generation really well. And so I started having a few conversations with my mother about this too. So it's really interesting. It makes you kind of hearken back. Um, definitely. My parents were very much fact checkers in this book. Really? Like, yeah. I mean, my parents yeah. always liked my early drafts. That's really, great. Yeah. yeah. Very lucky. And yeah. And so like, I, inv- I really invited that with this draft, I, with this book, I was like, you know, you need to tell me if there's something that doesn't ring true for you. Um, and, and they did, they, they were like, you know, I think the very early drafts of this book didn't, um, you know, I push a lot of the social foment of the seventies to the background because there's so much I needed to push forward. Right. But, you know, we've got Vietnam war protests. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, like there like, was so the, much going on civil rights protests. I mean, so I kind of allude to some of this. Um, but I think my parents kind of helped me understand like what it really felt like to be living through a lot of those, that unrest. So I tried to communicate the unrest without really like taking us to a protest. Right. Right. Um, you know, um, because my parents, my parents were also, they were not activists. They were, I mean, they went to UC Berkeley in the 1960s. My mom was a sorority girl and my dad was like an economics major. Okay. (laughs) So one of the things that I've always taken away from these eras is that it is possible to have been square (laughs) um, (laughs) against the backdrop of all of this insanity. Right. Right. Um, And I, I, I say the word square with like absolute respect and affection. I am also like totally square about things. So, but, and I've lived through all kinds of interesting um, times also, but, you know, there's always, it's, everything happens on a spectrum. Um, and, and so I really wanted to be able to represent that in this book. Also. I, I enjoyed that aspect because you really, as a reader, as a woman reader, um, you are thinking about where would I have been? What situations might have happened to me during that time period, given what resources I may have had or not had, um, that would have led me to get involved or not? And to what degree are you willing to risk the things that you have, especially if you're a young white woman who's able to go to college and have prospects? What are you willing to risk? How involved do you get? Who do you help? To what degree? Um, I'm thinking today, though, of all, so my daughter is in school in Idaho at Boise State University, and Idaho is definitely really making it difficult for women seeking any care that might involve any kind of DNC and abortion. And so the the women who are doctors, who are performing, people are fleeing the state to practice no. somewhere else because they're so unsure of if they could be. And so it's such an interesting layer because now we have all these women doctors, but we're going back to the state's rights. And now we're seeing women who do have careers thinking about well, where can I actually practice or do I stay here and try to do it? But am I going to be under a microscope, lose my license, get arrested? It's putting them in that same hot seat of, yeah. right, what do you yes. do? I mean, I, one of the things, one of the reasons I really wanted to write this story about the Jane Collective is that it is a provider story. Um, right. You know, the, the abortion story is 
at least in the media I have consumed in my, in my life. Well, first of all, it's not that common because of the hushed tones we discussed earlier. Um, but it's usually told from the perspective of the woman who needs the abortion. And those stories are important and need to continue to be so told. And I looked around and I was like, I don't really know very many like abortion provider stories. Like this is, this is a whole, these are a lot of people right out there today. And then, and in the intervening years uh, where we've had, you know, protesters stationed outside of clinics and their targets. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've read mercy street by Jennifer Haig, which is excellent. It's about a, it's about a contemporary abortion clinic in, in Boston. Also fictional. Um, it's terrific. And it's, it's really about the, it's really about the providers also, but you know, this, this issue now that we're in where like providers don't even know what they can discuss right. Right. with, with the people who come to their office because of this, this is a war that's now being waged on the level of speech, mm. not just care. Yeah. Right. It's, so, it, it's taken to such a, I mean, that's, I think one of the other things about the time period represented in the book and by the Jane Collective and, and what we're dealing with now. And, you know, at Extreme History, we're always interested in, in looking at historical periods. And this one isn't even that far back in time, but how they're relevant in the in the present. And I, I think we've done a, a good job of addressing that here. But I, I want to ask sort of as one of our final questions, um, Carrie, have you been getting any feedback from people um, about this book's important and relevance? Um, and what is the range of feedback you, you've been getting from folks? Um, well, at this stage, it's been overwhelmingly positive, oh, which good. has been really Congratulations. Think, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think I am, I am now at this point, I guess, preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, we'll see what happens. We'll see if there's pushback. Um, I haven't been banned that I know of. <laughs> Well, it's early uh, days yet, yeah. Carrie. So you know, um, right? So you know, we'll see what we'll see what happens. But I've been I've been so honored by um, you know the, the 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 positive reviews and um, and you know so far so good on places like Goodreads and Amazon. I don't I have to admit I don't read all those little individual reviews. I just my heart can't take it, but yeah. the, the the number looks good. Good, good. <laughs> That's good to hear. I yeah. know this is always a difficult subject. I feel like it's difficult for me too because um, women can become polarized when really we should all be supporting yeah. each other in everything we can do to be the women as individuals we want to be and in charge of our own lives and bodies. And I think that's the part. So I'm, I'm heartened to hear at least for now that, um, you're riding on a, a nice crest of a wave that is spreading good, good, um, intellectual, hopefully discussion, um, and positivity about what we can learn from this. Um, so, uh, this has been such a wonderful conversation and we would probably take up a lot more of your time, but we know we have to go and you have to go. Um, so just, uh, briefly tell people where they can find your book. All you have to do is call. It is everywhere books are sold and borrowed libraries. Um, it's on ebook hardback. Um, it's also an audiobook. I want to put in a plug for the audiobook. Um, I requested my reader, Lauren Allman, because she also read the Paris bookseller and like 
hit it out of the park. So I was like, I want her again. And she also hit this out of the park. So if you are an audiobook person like I am, mm-hmm. um, you can absolutely, um, you know, check a check an audiobook out of your local library, or you can um, use your Libro FM or Audible subscription to to get get the book that way. Um, ebooks, all all of it. You know, the paperback will probably be out in about a year. Um, but yeah, everywhere everywhere you can get books, That's- and um, you can find me. At, I'm most active on Instagram, and I also recently started my own Substack uh, newsletter where I write um, sort of behind-the-scenes essays of the historical fiction writing life. So oh, fantastic. Like, find me on Substack. My, my Substack is called Sandcastles. Okay, great. And what's your Instagram handle, Carrie? It's at Carrie Mayer Writer. So K-E-R-R-I-M-A-H-E-R Writer, all one word. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I highly encourage everybody to listen to this book, read this book, get this book. It's so good, and it really gives you a sense of that time and really gives you a sense of where we're headed in the future, of course, as well. So thank you so much, Carrie, um, for taking the time to sit down with us today. Yeah, your characters are so engaging, and we're so, just aside from the whole topic that we've been discussing, it's a lovely book to read, it's a story, and then it's just shockingly founded on something true, which is, just makes it all that more interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, such a pleasure. And thanks again to you and to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks so much for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. And a big thank you to our editors, Drake Pinnell and Sierra Thomas. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music, and to Steve Durbin at KGVM, and John Chadwell for helping us get the podcast out in the world. (music) 